Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. And I've been working through the, uh, the first of a three-part mini-series within our bigger series, exploring what spiritual maturity looks like. I think that's an important thing to understand because one of the goals we have as Christians is not to stay where we came into the journey, but to keep growing steadily towards maturity. But we can't really do that well if we don't know what maturity is supposed to look like expressed in the human life. So we're going to look at at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And I want to just read the words again from this text. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Now, last Sunday, I I mentioned that That's an overwhelming list of stuff that you have to be or look like if you want to be a leader in the church. And as a leader in the church, I am very much weighed down by this list because it seems like so much that I have to keep track of. And it's a bit of an overwhelming, random-sounding list. But I was able to group them together into several categories that express for us a little more simply, what does Christian maturity look like? And the first grouping we saw was Christian maturity expresses itself in a character that results out of a very mature relationship with ourselves. In other words, if you're quick to believe your own lies, if you're too convinced of your own goodness, you will probably not develop spiritual maturity because you've got to be very honest with where you are before God and, be, and really be willing to tell the truth to yourself. I just, I just bought a book. With the, the, the title itself grabbed me. The title was I Told Me So, and uh, I, I can't wait to read the book. It's, it's just about the things we have to tell ourselves. The second grouping is control. This idea of a right relationship with God expressed through who is in control in our lives and whether we are at all times under control. And finally, community or connection. Spiritual maturity is seen in the nature of the relationships we have with other people. So this morning, we're going to park right here in the middle one and consider 
uh, some issues of control in our lives. At the earliest years of our church, um, we were planted by a Korean church just down the road in Hoffman Estates called Alliance Fellowship Church. And in the earliest years of our church, I still was under the authority of the leadership of that Korean church. I was on their staff and, of course, under the authority of the senior pastor there. Now he, the senior pastor there was a very, not was, he's still around. He's, he is a very humble, gracious man extraordinary, really. It was hard for me in my experience growing up in the Korean church to see a lot of pastors who I felt close to that I openly immediately trusted, but this man was such a man. And he invited me not to do all the bowing, and he spoke English to me, allowed me to speak English to him. In other words, he wanted to make it easy for me to be myself and to speak my mind to him so that we could act like partners in ministry. That was very refreshing for me because, number one, I don't do really well with politics, and number two, I can't speak Korean. And so it was just like breathing fresh air to work under this man. And he wasn't very stuffy. He let me speak pretty freely, and at times, I think I really abused that freedom. There were times when we didn't see eye to eye, and he would allow me to speak my mind, but there were a couple times where I was so frustrated, so angry, I would get a little carried away. And please have a little grace towards me. I was in my 20s. I didn't know anything back then. I was pretty stupid. And I was all full of, of whatever. 20-year-olds are, are full of. And I remember one occasion, I was particularly out of control. And I was seeing red. And I was just speaking. And he, he calmly put his hand on my shoulder and said, Dave, I know you're upset. But I really wish you would remember who I am to you. And I thought, you know, if I were in his shoes now looking back, I would have just punched me in the face. I would have yelled. I would have said something. But he was so gracious the way he did. He just said, and he looked so hurt and disappointed. And he just said, I wish you would remember who I am to you. Because he wasn't always putting it in my face, but it was still nonetheless true. We had a relationship, and it wasn't an equal relationship. And I learned a lot in that moment and through his words and attitude. That for any relationship to work right, one of the fundamental things we need to have is a mindfulness about who that other person is to us. That if at any point in the relationship, but especially in times of conflict, if you are forgetful of who that person is to you, rightly so, that relationship will be destroyed. I think in times of conflict especially, it's easy to be forgetful of who people are to us. You can so easily reduce another human being to an annoying voice or to my opponent in this argument. You can start looking at another human being as simply an obstacle to something you want to get, or maybe they're the reason to blame for all of the woes in your life. And as we reduce another human being to these negative things... It's very easy to just see them as an object or an idea or a symbol and not a person who is supposed to mean something to us. In fact, in all the great crimes against humanity and all the genocides and terrorist attacks, the only way for a human being who is sane to do those things of violence to another human being is to objectify them, reduce them to something less than human. To be forgetful of their humanity and reduce them to simply a political position or a symbol, or an object. 
And we do this all the time in relationships. I see it every day in friendships, in marriages, in parenting relationships. We can't afford to see the humanity of others, and so we reduce them to something I can easily abuse or be forgetful of. We do this also in our relationship with God. When we talk about this familiar phrase, a relationship with God, think about it. How do you usually regard a relationship with God? I think most often we think in terms of maybe religion. My relationship with God is seen in the time I spend in prayer or Bible study or going to church. Or maybe you think about it in terms of intimacy. My relationship with God is in those moments when I feel very close to him, very loved and safe and secure. And I think those are both right expressions of our relationship with God. But at a fundamental level, before you can even get to those points, a relationship with God must begin at this most basic point. Are you mindful of who God is supposed to be to you? If God is not God, but something else, something less, if you're forgetful of who God is meant to be, you will not discover anything else meaningful in that relationship with him. At the start, at the very basic level of a relationship with God, is remembering that he is God and we are human. And that that differential, that gap, is supposed to define so much in the relationship we experience. In other words, the intimacy of God is not good news unless you realize just how crazy it is to be intimate with God. It's like this. How many of you guys have a friend who's pretty famous? Anybody have a celebrity, like even a pseudo sort of sort of famous friend? All right. Um, If you walk around saying to people, hey, you know, Dave Lee is my friend, everyone's going to be like, yeah, good for you. Who cares? But if you walk around saying like, you know, Brad Pitt and me, we're, we're buds. We hang out. That's like a big deal, right? Because if you say me and Barack, you don't even have to say his last name, right? If you say me and Barack are friends, that's kind of a big deal. And the reason that you often think about, wow, I have Barack on speed dial on my phone. Not a lot of people do, but I have his personal number. And it warms your heart, not just because of the friendship itself, but because it's so unlikely, so improbable, so crazy that someone so other, so transcendent, should be to you a familiar friend. See, we wonder why people make such a big deal out of God being intimate with us. God loves me. You, have you ever felt that in church, like, like the preacher saying, God loves you, and the, the kook next to you is like, oh my gosh, I'm so blessed. And you're like, what's the big deal? Why is everyone here so excited about that? The good news is not really good news unless you realize how crazy it is that such statements should be made at all. That's why at the starting point of our relationship with God is a mindfulness of just who he really is. And a big part of recognizing that, being mindful of it, is to remember that when we're in the presence of God and in a relationship with God, there is a rightful relationship of authority between us and him. That in that relationship, somebody is meant to be in control And that somebody is not us. So in this list of qualities of a a spiritually mature person, Paul, in this particular area, lists a few things we ought to be thinking about. 
He talks about, basically he's telling Timothy, if you're looking for leaders in the church, here are some things you've got to pay attention to as gauges of spiritual maturity. Take a look at their temper. Take a look at the way that they manage anger or when they're offended or hurt or wounded, how they respond to others. Here's another one. Take a look at their relationship with money because a person with a messed up relationship with money has a messed up relationship with lots of things. And then take a look at their relationship with alcohol because there's something about alcohol that is good and there's something about alcohol that is horrible. And based on that person's relationship with alcohol and symbolically with other substances, you will learn a lot about them. And there's one thing that ties all three of these things together. These are all things that have to do with control in human life. They answer the question, who is in control? And they also answer the question, are you always under control? I think spiritual maturity is seen in the degree to which God is in control in our lives. And that's especially meaningful in a couple of situations. One is when we're take, tempted to take control. Will you admit with me that life is kind of frightening? I'll share with you very transparently. Right now. I, I think something's going on with my body, and my wife thinks I'm a hypochondriac. She thinks that I'm always feeling like something's going to happen to me. I don't think that's a fair assessment of me. I, at my age, I know my body and something is off. It feels off right now. I've been dropping things lately. And normally I'm like as coordinated as a ninja. You know, you throw something, I'll catch it. Lately, I'm like grabbing my keys and I miss completely. I try trolling them and I drop. This morning, I was brushing my teeth and I missed. I did something weird and I, it flew out of my hand and my toothbrush fell in the toilet. Now, that's, that sounds kind of funny, but I'm worried because that kind of thing doesn't happen to healthy people. Like, something's wrong with my, I don't know what it is, but I don't feel right, and I'm starting to get a little worried, and fear is starting to rise. And that's one of those areas where fear is very visceral, isn't it? Because you can buy your way out of a lot of things, but you can't buy your way out of sick. If something happens, it happens. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, if you're important or not. You're sick, you get sick. Illness doesn't care about your reputation or your resume. And as that fear rises in me, there is such a strong temptation to take control of the situation. I don't like being afraid, and I don't like being uncertain, and I know you don't either. But life will force you to be there in that place over and over and over terrified at how deeply you will be affected by things you have no control over whatsoever. And when you don't have control, what is the first impulse most people have? It is to take back some measure of control. So Paul says, pay attention to a person's relationship with money. Because I don't think the most toxic part of the love of money is just greed. Greed is easy to spot a million miles away. Anybody who's greedy is sort of flaky and shallow, money, money, money. That's not really the side of things that's dangerous. That's almost cartoonish in its simplicity. The real danger in the love of money is that money offers us some measure of control over our lives. It gives us, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this flat out, it gives us the illusion that we can win back some of the control that we don't have. 
If I'm going to be sick, at least money gives me access to the best doctors. If my wife's going to drive in the winter snows of Chicago, at least money gives me the ability to buy my wife a really reliable car. Everyone loves their kids, but not everyone can give their kids everything they need and want. And so money gives me the ability to control the future of my children. And on and on the lies go, right? This idea that somehow if I have money, I have control. Now, I'm not asking you to look sideways at anybody who's got a little money and go, <laughs> you see? What I'm saying is that we all, it doesn't matter what your net worth is, money, for most of us, at its most dangerous place, represents control or the idea that in the face of the awful fear and uncontrollability of life, money will give me my control back. So why we love the idea of financial independence. I don't think most people at Harvest who are wealthy are, are like throwing it in anybody's face. What really I experienced when I was making a lot of money in the corporate world was I love the freedom it gave me. To me, money, wealth, meant if my wife ever said, hey, can we get, I would just say, don't even finish that sentence. You don't have to ask me. Just get it. Do we need it? Just get it. I don't want to waste my time discussing whether we can save up and afford this. Just get it. You know, the kids need, I don't care. Just get it. And it streamlined my life so much. Jeannie enjoyed it too. It was like, we didn't talk a lot about, could we afford, should we, just, just buy it. And I love that feeling. I miss going to Costco and just throwing stuff in my cart. Hey, that's interesting. I wonder. I didn't even look at the price tags. I didn't even, for a period of my life, I didn't even pay attention to what things cost. I do now. <laughs> I really pay attention now. But there was a period of strange headiness where it was like living in a dream. Everything was like a video game. Just buy that, buy that, buy that, buy that. And I loved it. It gave me some sense of being in control of my life. It made me feel safe, protected. See, I think the love of money ultimately, especially in a country as wealthy as ours, is about expressing this deep desire to control our lives. Second theme that he picks up on is make sure that the people you appoint to leadership are not violent, but gentle. That's a weird thing to have to say about, you know, like how many of us when we're looking for a new elder, we're like, try to find the least violent guy in the church. But here, here's the thing. I grew up in the Korean church, and I grew up watching from time to time, maybe you have too, some conflicts happen in the church. And in the beginning, it's a lot of yelling, but at some point it becomes more than yelling. I've, I've seen fist fights between adults in the hallways of the church. It's shocking. My friend in L.A. who's a pastor there told me he got into such a sharp conflict with the elders at his church. One day, they came and nailed wooden planks onto his door to lock him into his office so he could not come out for a vote of the session. Like, you got to be kidding me. That, that sounds like a horrible movie. It happened to him. What is at the heart of physical violence? See, I think we all have come to that place where we realize, I want to control you. I want to make you think a certain way or act a certain way, and I can't get you to do it. And it's so frustrating because I'm convinced that what I want you to do is right, and you can't see it. 
If you have a teenager, right away you know that feeling of like so badly wanting to spare them from things. You say, please just do this. And they're like, no, you can't make me. I'm not gonna. And at that moment, like you have no tools left, do you? When you were a kid, you would just say, I'll take away your, your DS. I don't care. Take it. You start taking away everything. At, at some point, there's nothing left to take away, is there? Send them to school naked. What are you going to do? Like, I'll take away your pants. What can, at some point, you realize, very, very abruptly, you come to this point, I cannot control another human being. I think I can, but I always have to have some leverage. And when I run out of leverage, I'm staring in the face this simple truth. You have no power over other people. You might want your partner to be more expressive, more vulnerable, more loving, more honest, whatever. And you can nag and nag and talk and all that, but you can't actually make them like that, can you? You might want your children to be a little more ambitious. You might want your friends to be a little bit more considerate of you. How come I'm always throwing the surprise parties? Nobody ever throws me a surprise party. Do you see how badly we want to be able to control the relationship we have with others, but we can't. And when a person resists our desire to control, and you realize you have nothing left, no leverage left, when wits and words have failed us, quite often when you press to the edge, the fists come out. When all the pleading and all the negotiating has failed, but you still have this burden in your heart, the last refuge is to take matters into your own hands and start manhandling. Do you understand what I'm saying? I've gotten there with my kids, and I, I confess this. I'm not proud of it, but I've gotten to this point where my kids, I'm like, get up. All right, we will, I will. Get up. Yeah, I know, I will. Finally, I'm like, I'm your daddy. I shouldn't have to say eight times to you, get up. And when I'm not having a good day, I will walk up to them. I'll grab their ear and go, okay, let's go. How's that feel? Huh? You can't ignore my hand anymore. You can ignore my voice all day, but when my hand grabs your ear and it's pulling against gravity, you suddenly seem to get up. Now, I'm not proud of myself in those moments. The kid is physically moving, but I realize I've hit the end of my resources, and this is the last refuge of failure. <laughs> when I have to start manhandling, when I have to get physical at any level, something has horribly failed in me. And really what I'm recognizing is I have lost control of the situation and I'm trying by brute force, by the fact that there's a strength differential between us, I'm trying to regain some control. Do you realize how often in life we are strongly driven to take control back? By whatever means, whether it's through money and financial power, whether it's through physical power, there will always be a desire to take control back. And it is precisely at those moments where you want to grab control that spiritual maturity expresses itself in remembering that God is in control. In fact, I'm convinced that God uses those situations and people over whom we have no control to do some of his greatest work in our life. When I can control things, I control things, and I don't learn a thing. I just move forward. But when I can't control things, I so often see the power and majesty of God show up in my life. He breaks through 
precisely at those moments where only God breaking through could change my life. Do you know what I'm talking about? You've been there, haven't you? He has used the things that you can't control to remind you that he is very much still in control. And it's the ability to remember that, to be mindful of that, that expresses spiritual maturity. There's a second situation. This is the last of the two points in this message, so we're almost there. Not only are we tempted to take control, sometimes we're tempted to lose control, aren't we? That's what the entire city of Las Vegas is for. You know the motto, what stays in Vegas, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? Because it's a whole city meant for, this is all like in parentheses. This doesn't count in real life. What I do here is not the real me. It's a whole city built on, cross my fingers. (laughs) Psych. Now, I'm not saying no one should go to Vegas. I'm saying that's the, that's the blatant purpose of a city like that, is it symbolizes in geographic form a desire we all have as human beings. I don't always want to be on duty. There are times when I just want to be free of that, to not have to care, not give a rip, not be on. Sometimes I just want to lose it. And so he, he again emphasizes Watch out for people who are violent because sometimes violence is about trying to control a situation. And sometimes, if we're really honest about it, violence has nothing to do with controlling. It just is about just opening a can on somebody, right? I love that drawing. Someone actually drew that on a computer. This idea that sometimes violence has nothing to do with teaching or controlling. It's just about venting. I, I can't control you. In fact, I don't even want to win this argument. I don't even want to win you. I just want to hurt you. And I want to move on with my life. I want to make you feel pain and discomfort. And there's no lesson attached to it. There's no asterisk to see the fine print. It's just, do you hurt? Good. Because that's what I wanted. I want to hurt you so that I feel better about myself. I just want to let this out. I think all of us know how to be patient with people up to a certain point, right? All right, you promise? Yeah, I promise. All right, one last chance. And we wait, and we wait, and we wait. But there comes a point, what we call the Popeye moment. I stood all I can stands, and I can't stands no more. Remember Popeye? He was so patient until he couldn't take it anymore. And at that moment... In every human being, when that point is reached, there's a weird switch inside that just says, hey, this is that moment where I've been heroic up to this point. No one can hold blame against me. No one can find fault in me. Who in my shoes would not feel exactly as I'm feeling right now? And in every word, every nuance of attitude, what we're saying to ourselves is, you get to be bad for a little while. You get to not care about anyone else's feelings. You get to do damage and destroy free of charge, get out of jail free. Why? Because I've put up with so much pain. Isn't it someone else's turn to feel it? Now, I'm not criticizing that feeling. I've had it myself. But do you see the danger that that feeling represents? That feeling where I have put up with enough, and now what I really want It's a moment of time out where no one looks at what I'm about to do, where nobody holds this in my record. I want this expunged, but I need to vent what I'm feeling. 
It's the reason we swear out loud in traffic when no one else is in the car. What's the purpose of those words? It's not about saying or communicating anything. It's just about letting it out, venting. I had a moment the other day when I had used my Bluetooth earpiece to talk to somebody. And then someone cut me off in the road after I hung up. And I just shouted something ungenerous and unkind at that person. And I remember my first thought was, oh, shoot, what if I haven't actually disconnected the call? What if that other person's still listening? And I've just shouted this really mean thing at somebody. And it's interesting that I worried about that. But the truth is, in that moment, all I wanted was to not be a pastor and just be another motorist, offended, angry. I probably more than you have those moments because I'm always supposed to be on duty. Oh, you call yourself a pastor? What, do you have to be your job 24-7? Does anyone say, oh, you call yourself an accountant? Come on! And yet, there's this weird moment in me where I want so badly for this next moment not to count. I want to just lose control, and I want it to be okay. It's especially in those moments when we have this strong desire to shed responsibility for what I'm about to do, that we have to be mindful of who God is to us. He is our Father. And every other person we touch are His children. And we're obligated to Him. We're accountable to Him. We don't get to behave at any moment as though God isn't watching and He doesn't care. He is always there. And he does care. And that doesn't erase the strong feelings of pain and frustration we all feel. But in those moments, the spiritually immature will say, well, forget it. I don't care. Spiritual immaturity expresses itself at that moment of saying, yeah, all right, whatever. Spiritual maturity says, even now, I will acknowledge God. I don't want to. No one would blame me if I didn't. But even now in this difficult place, I must acknowledge him because if I don't do it now, what does it mean when I do it any other time? That's why he also mentions drunkenness, our relationship with alcohol. I'll be the first to acknowledge that the freedom to use alcohol is given to us in Scripture. A lot of... uh, Bible commentators have said, well, they watered down the wine eight to one with water, and so it's not the same. Nothing in the ancient world was as strong as the liquor we have today. Okay, that's fine. But what I'm saying is there is some measure of freedom to use alcohol. But, that's the big but, it is also an incredibly dangerous thing to play around with substances that alter our mood. Because just like with temper or with money or with any substance abuse, you are the last one to know when you've lost control. And every drunk person I've ever been with at a party swears up, and I'm not drunk, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not drunk. I'm totally okay. This is how I always act. Come on. Come, I know you. You're a little drunk. You're actually a lot drunk, but for your dignity's sake, I'll say, you're a little drunk. <laughs> One too many. You had about 18 too many. You're plastered, and it's embarrassing. You're no longer in control of yourself, but here's the thing, and I'm not trying to embarrass anyone. I'm saying to all of us, 
whether it's temper, whether it's money, whether it's alcohol, you are always the last in the room to know when you've crossed the line and lost control. You cannot listen to your own voice on this one. You cannot. Because you will lie to yourself all day long about how much control you have. And at the heart of alcohol, its main, how shall I say it? Its main, uh, I don't want to say benefit, but what it does for us is it lowers inhibitions If alcohol made people more discerning, more careful, more cautious, nobody would ever go to bars to pick up women. They'd be like, not you. I've had six drinks and now I see clearly. I'm never going home with you. The whole point of alcohol is it makes you look at someone and go, whatever. Why not? Let's just go for it. It's an inhibitor of inhibition. And that's precisely why we use it, because right now, this moment, and we're not talking about all use of alcohol. We're not even talking about cracking a bottle of wine at a party. I'm talking about when you drink because you want to get drunk. When you drink because you're using it as medicine to forget, to embolden yourself, to release responsibility for yourself. When you just want to hide from your own life. That's, in the, that's pretty much in the minority in any group of people. Only a very few are using it that way. But if that's where you are, I want you to understand what that represents in you. It's not just an alcohol problem. It's a heart problem. That in that moment, life has overwhelmed you, and you want so badly to shed off this responsibility for what you're going to do next. The reason people get drunk is so that whatever happens afterwards, they don't have to be responsible for. I learned that in high school. The number one activity all day on Monday was telling everybody how stupid you acted because you were blasted, wasted. What, is, was it just my high school? Did any of you go to high school where that was the Monday activity? Dude, I was so wasted. I woke up in the field and there was cow poop on my forehead. And it was like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. It's not awesome. That's embarrassing. But what they're saying is even though that's stupid, don't count it against me. I was drunk And therefore, I was not answerable for my actions. It feels good, doesn't it? To just let go. To not always have to be so stiff, so composed, so in control. It feels good to just enjoy. And I would not ever take away the enjoyment of life from another human being. You guys know me by now. I love a good time. But when you cross that line... And start using things to forget yourself, to forget your obligations to other people, and most of all to God. When you want a free pass to conduct yourself in a way that doesn't matter, please don't hold this next 12 hours against me, God. It doesn't count. Something is going on in your heart you have to be attentive to. It's dangerous to live in that place. It's dangerous to use substances to absolve you of engagement with life, of being responsible for who you are. And when that happens, there's such a spiritual temptation to just lose control. And in those moments, the spiritually immature will say, yeah, why not? Here's the the national anthem of the spiritually immature. You know that sound? That's the drunk sound. That's the I don't care what I'm about to do next war cry is only drunk people make that sound 
spiritual maturity says, I want nothing more than to lose control and not be responsible for what I do. But there's a God in heaven, and I live in front of him every day. I want to punch my brother in the face so badly. But that brother is God's son. I can't hurt him, not be responsible to this God, be forgetful of what I do to another human being and what I do to him. I'm always living my life in front of a God who is in control. And that's why I fight to maintain control, to live under his control, especially at those moments when what I want more than anything is not care, not be on duty, not be mindful of who I am, but just get a free pass. Everyone who's ever been cheated on was tempted to cheat back. Anyone who's ever been robbed, beaten, has a desire to rob and to beat back. It's human to feel those things. But Christ in us produces a different reaction. This world is a challenging, challenging place to live. It's very hard just living, but it's very, very hard living righteously for Christ. And over and over and over again in your life, you're going to wrestle in the tension between these two temptations, to grasp control or to lose control. In the face of both of those temptations, I simply ask you to remember, you serve and worship a God who is always in control. When you want to take control because you're scared, turn to God because he is in control. When you're wounded and angry and you want to lose control, turn to God. Because he sees your pain, and yet he says, I am here in heaven, and you live in front of my face every day. Remember yourself. Remember who I am, says God. Stay under my control, because I am in control. I hope that that speaks to you in some meaningful way where you are in your life. And I've taken a few risks this morning and shown you that your pastor is not such a godly man all the time. I shout things that I don't want overheard. There are times when I wish I could just grab a bottle and forget everybody else's problems. Just pretend everything's great. And I'm telling you, we all are in that place all the time. As we go to prayer now, just for a few minutes, we're running a little late, so we'll just uh, pray for a couple minutes. I want to ask you, wherever you are in your life, to just come before God and let him speak to you. Just let him speak to you. Are you at that place of wanting to take control? Are you gripped by fear of things you can't control? Then God says, remember, I'm in control. You don't have to protect yourself from everything. You don't have to work this whole universe. I am in control. Maybe that's what you need to focus on. Maybe the other side is true for you. And you've had enough. And you can't take anymore. And right now what you want is a free past to do what you know in your heart is wrong and not care. And I say to you, I know how you feel. So does God. He knows exactly where you are. How do you think Jesus felt on the cross having done nothing 
and being put to death. And yet he says, I am in control. Don't you ever forget who you are and who I am. I am in control. So wherever you find yourself this morning, let's spend two minutes just praying, listening listening to God. And then we'll close. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.